Welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Talk, Theology for Sojourners. Pilgrim Talk is a weekly podcast devoted to the discussion of the Christian faith for the Christian sojourner as they travel to the heavenly city. I'm John Sweat. I'm Dylan Harrison. And today we have back with us Dr. Lee Irons. Dr. Lee Irons came on and did an interview with us on season one on imputation and union with Christ. And I think it was a, a great blessing for us to hear about how those things relate to one another, Christ's work and his righteousness for us, and how we united to him and receive that righteousness. And so if you want to learn about who Dr. Irons is, you can go back to that episode where he gives sort of an introduction about who he is and how he's serving the church. But really, we want to just kind of jump right in, Dr. Irons, and we want to begin by just, well, first talking about kind of the new perspective on Paul. What is it? Who are some of the key theologians? And look at some texts of scripture that they seek to kind of interpret in a particular way to support their view. But really, we want to then move into, you know, how does this really affect the church, the average layperson, and how does it affect our understanding of the gospel, or how can it th- be a threat to our understanding of the gospel? And so, why don't you just begin, Dr. Irons, by just sort of giving us uh, kind of an overview of what is the new perspective on Paul? Yeah, sure. So, the new perspective on Paul is a movement in New Testament scholarship that began formally in the 1980s, but there were some roots before that in the 60s and 70s that was attempting to reinterpret Paul's doctrine of justification or his teaching on uh, saying that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law, to reinterpret that in a different way, in a sociological context as having to do with Paul's desire to uh, provide a theological grounding for the inclusion of the Gentiles. I mentioned that it really began in the 80s. James D.G. Dunn and N.T. Wright were the first scholars that came out and used that term, the new perspective on Paul. It was technically coined by N.T. Wright, but James Dunn sort of publicized it by publishing an article with that title. But the roots of it go back before there was a a Lutheran biblical theologian named Christopher Stendhal, who wrote an article in 1960, actually it was a a lecture he gave in 1961 called Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West, in which he argued that Paul had been misunderstood and misread by Martin Luther and the medieval and Reformation traditions in terms of how can I as a sinner find my, my guilt to be dealt with and to, to find a gracious God. So this introspective wrestling of the conscience and, you know, you all the stories of Martin Luther and how he was struggling with assurance and struggling with, uh, the requirements of the church for making full confession of sin and so on Mm. and the doctrine of penance and all that. And he says, Christopher Stendhal says that way of reading Paul through the lens of the introspective conscience of the West. Uh, got Pauline studies and Pauline theology off on the wrong track and everything was wrong because that's not what Paul is dealing with in his view. What Paul is dealing with is the Jew-Gentile problem. And uh, so a little bit later in 1976, Stendhal published a book called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. And right at the very beginning, he says this, the following chapters will demonstrate how such a doctrine of justification by faith was hammered out by Paul for the very specific and limited purpose of defending the rights of Gentile converts to be full and genuine heirs to the promises of God to Israel. 
So you can see how he's saying justification by faith, as we traditionally think of it from Luther and the Reformation, uh, is not about how can I be right with God? How can I have my sins dealt with and have assurance of my salvation? It's about defending the rights of Gentile converts. And so, you know, hence the title of his book, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. And so that then kind of set the pattern for this new perspective. Dunn and Wright and others picked up on that and, and basically developed it and said that our traditional understanding from Luther and the reformers that justification by faith alone has to do with this idea of the being reckoned as righteous in the sight of a holy God so that God views us as having satisfied the requirements of the law. That's not what justification is about. It's about defining who is a member of the people of God. So N.T. Wright basically says, look at Galatians 2 in the Antioch controversy. Galatians 2 is his kind of paradigm text. Galatians 2 for him defines what Paul's getting at when he's talking about justification by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. And in the context there, the issue is table fellowship, right? You know, before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But then when these men from James came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared the circumcision party. And so it has to do with table fellowship, with who is, who is a part of the people of God, who can sit down together at the table of Christ and participate together. And so it's in that context that Paul then brings up justification by faith, not by works of the law in verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so N.T. Rice says, see, right there, he's clearly talking, that's his answer to this problem of who can have table fellowship of Jews and Gentiles eating together at the table of the Lord. And so... In response to that, what does Paul say? He says, a person is justified not by works of the law, like circumcision, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore, we have to reinterpret that we're justified, not in the traditional Lutheran, Reformed, Calvinistic, Protestant sense of being reckoned as righteous before God so that we have our sins taken away and we are now accepted in the sight of a holy God, but has to be understood as being reckoned as a member of the people of God, being reckoned as someone whom we can have table fellowship with. And so Wright and also Dunn said the key, the key is to understand not only the verb justified to reinterpret that, but also to reinterpret the phrase works of the law. Works of the law is not the traditional idea of doing the the moral deeds of righteousness required by the law. No, works of the law has to do with these um, Jewish distinctives like circumcision or keeping the clean and unclean food laws or keeping the Sabbath. These are the boundary markers that separate a Jew from Gentile. And so what Paul is saying here when he says that we're not justified by the works of the law is that we're not reckoned as a member of the people of God by doing these Jewish boundary markers that identify you as a Jew. Rather, you're reckoned as a member of the people of God by the badge of faith in Christ. So whoever professes faith in Christ is now reckoned as a member of the people of God. So that's basically what the new perspective was all about. And that was back in the 80s and 90s. Since then, things have kind of 
changed a little bit. I don't, I, I, I'm pretty sure that NT Wright still holds to all of that, but it doesn't seem to be quite as, um, predominant in New Testament scholarship anymore to, to argue for such a specific understanding of things. Things have shifted now. It's like they've gone beyond the new perspective. There's now this new movement where they're trying to say that Paul was actually within Judaism, that he never proclaimed any kind of new religion called Christianity, but everything he was doing was as a Jew. And so he was simply um, trying to say that Gentiles are saved by believing in the Messiah and the Jews are saved by keeping the law. And so Paul, it's called the Paul within Judaism movement. And there's other things too, like the apocalyptic interpretation of Paul. That's a big deal now. So the new perspective itself has kind of faded a little bit, although it's still in the background and it has kind of spread, I think, beyond the narrow realm of New Testament professors and, this, and the guild of New Testament scholarship and kind of become a broader thing where there's a general seeping out of this basic idea that of, of losing, basically losing that, that, that really critical concept of what is justification? You know, justification has kind of been watered down to maybe just being in a right relationship with God or, you know, something more vague, but not the specific idea of being reckoned as righteous, meaning reckoned as having fulfilled the law in the sight of God so that God's justice is satisfied. And now we are granted the righteousness of Christ as a legal righteousness that is our right and title to eternal life. That's very narrow, specific kind of judicial definition of righteousness has been lost, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, a sort of a helpful historical overview. And as we kind of, you know, like you said, a lot of this is kind of no longer in that sort of halls of uh, New Testament scholarship per se, but it's sort of branched out to different things. And in just a moment, we'll get to kind of the brass tacks of how this can affect the local church and our understanding of justification. Maybe we could just go to one text real quick and you could kind of flesh out for us what the new perspective on Paul would do with the phrase, the righteousness of God. So Romans 1.17, right? The, the gospel is, you know, the revealed the righteousness of, of God. And, you know, just as you're, you're going to that text, you know, so someone like Matthew Bates, who would be like a, maybe a popularizer of the new perspective on Paul, he, he certainly is very sympathetic in his book, Gospel Allegiance. He says things like, he says, the gospel is the only, is only the objective work of the son of God in history as the son of David and promised Messiah from incarnation to exaltation as the sovereign Lord, but it doesn't include our salvation. And he actually goes on to write and say that there's not a single text in the New Testament that equates the gospel with justification, faith, or righteousness. He then gives the caveat, obviously. He says, yeah, there's Romans 1, 16 through 17, and there's Galatians 3, 8, but they only appear to equate the gospel and justification by faith. And so I think just by us maybe just looking, doing a brief test case and looking at Romans 1.17, I think that could be helpful to just see what they mean by the righteousness of God and what really the historic Protestant understanding is of the righteousness of God in particular in this text here in Romans 1. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, so basically the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17 is one of those critical 
Pauline phrases. It doesn't only occur there. It also is used several more times in Romans. It comes up again in Romans 3.21 and uh, Romans 10.3. But this, this phrase, the righteousness of God, is really important. In fact, it was critical to Martin Luther's discovery of the gospel. Martin Luther talks about how he was struggling with this text as a medieval monk, and he's reading this this uh, passage and trying to understand. He couldn't understand it because it seemed like it was saying that, hey, this is good news, everyone. You know, Paul's saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. It's this great thing. It's this wonderful thing. It's the power of God for salvation. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and Luther kept struggling with that and saying, what? what are you saying, Paul? He even says, I was beating on Paul in this passage, <laughs> trying to figure <laughs> out what he meant. And because he could only think of the righteousness of God in the kind of the attribute of God sense, like mm. the justice of God, the justice of God by which he rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, right? Well, how is that good news? How is that this great, wonderful thing? You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the right. Oh, why? Because in it, God, God has revealed that he's a righteous God, a just God who judges sin. That's not good, good news. That's not encouraging. That doesn't help me. You know, and but he said he finally figured out that what Paul is talking about is not the attribute of God, of God's justice, but rather, and he, the thing that helped him to discover this, by the way, was reading Augustine, because Augustine explained it correctly, that this is not the righteousness of God with which God himself is righteous. Rather, this is the righteousness that God gives to us as a gift. And so once he figured that out, then he understood, okay, we have to distinguish between active and passive righteousness. Active righteousness is the righteousness that we ourselves do by good works and obeying the law. Passive righteousness is the righteousness that we receive as a gift with the empty hand of faith. It's mm. the righteousness of Christ that is reckoned to us. And it's received by faith alone, not by active obedience, not by active righteousness on our part. It is active obedience. It's the active obedience of Christ, not the active obedience mm. of us. But he, he was using that term, that distinction between active and passive in a different sense from in Reformed theology. He wasn't talking about passive obedience in terms of the sufferings of Christ and active obedience in terms of the obedience of Christ in our place. But he was using it in terms of this distinction between our righteousness versus the righteousness that comes from God. Mm. Our righteousness that we work out ourselves actively, that's active righteousness. But passive righteousness is a, is a righteousness that we simply receive. So he understood then, when he, when he came to that discovery, he said it was like the gates of paradise were open for him. And then he finally understood the glory of the gospel, that the righteousness by which we are justified, by which we are accepted as righteous in God's sight, is not our own doings and our own constant trying to repent and try harder and you know, going to the sacraments and doing all these things and being a good monk and, you know, really working hard and on mortifying the flesh. It's not that. It's the righteousness of Christ that he has fulfilled for us, satisfying God's law in our behalf so that we could be accepted as righteous in the sight of God by faith alone. Yeah. And as we talk about some of these uh, terms, even justification, and we're talking about a lot of the uh, different concepts that this ties into, we're really hitting to uh, the heart of the Christian life in the church. So can we shift our conversation a little bit into how it affects everyday Christians? I'm already seeing ways that, you know, even in certain sermons where these preachers may not 
embrace the new perspective of Paul, may not have even studied up on it, where it kind of seeps through, like you mentioned, it dwindling in one aspect, but uh, as it's diluting, it feels like it's spreading. So a diluted version of this is, is prevalent or somewhere seen. How is that affecting in the local church? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what I mentioned before about how I feel that my sense is that the the strong judicial context of justification is being lost and justification is being watered down to something more vague and general like i mean you often hear this right that justification is simply being right with god and that's not necessarily a a bad thing that's correct but right with God in what sense? Right with God in the relational sense that my heart is right, that I have right feelings toward God, or right with God in the judicial sense that in the sight of God's perfect holiness, I am accepted as righteous because Christ is in my place and he has fully satisfied the justice and holiness and righteousness of God for me by his perfect life and by his death on the cross. And so that kind of... um it's really, really what it goes back to is that sort of the old language that you find like in the Westminster Confession, it's probably in the London Baptist Confession too, but it talks about Christ's uh, satisfaction, mm. right? That was the term that they used to refer to this whole legal idea. We would refer to that as like uh, substitutionary atonement, but in the older language, they called it the satisfaction of Christ, that he satisfied the just requirements of God's holy law. And he did that not only by taking away the curse, by bearing the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins, but he also did it by actively fulfilling the positive moral requirements of the law through his own obedience. And so this Christ satisfies the justice of God. And so that idea of satisfaction is what's, it's what's lacking. Is that in order for me to be right with God, going back to that old, you know, kind of contemporary evangelical language, I need a substitute who can satisfy the justice of God in my place. I don't just need to have my heart changed. I need a substitute who can satisfy in my place. And so that's why that phrase, the righteousness of God is so critical because it talks that, that basically is saying the satisfaction of God's justice through another so that now there is righteousness available to us from God that God himself provides as a gift. Now, one of the old things that, that used to be a problem back in the days the reformers were, were arguing with, with the Socinians in the 17th century was how can it be that you say both that God is merciful and that he forgives our sins and that God demands perfect satisfaction of his justice? How can both of those things be true? Isn't it just the opposite? Isn't it, don't you have to pick one or the other? If you want to emphasize that God is loving and merciful and gracious and that he forgives our sins, then you want to, then you, then that's basically saying he doesn't require satisfaction. He doesn't require this legal requirement to be fulfilled by another. And so the Socinians therefore denied the concept of the penal substitutionary atonement. And that's what gave rise to other theories of the atonement, like the governmental theory or the moral influence theory. These are just other theories that say, or like C.S. Lewis's uh, 
substitutionary repentance theory, right? You heard about that one? Yeah. Where it's like Christ repented in our place, basically. That's what he did on the cross is he was repenting. And so he's like repenting for us or in us or through us or something. All these weird cockamamie theories of the atonement because they all want to get rid of this idea that God's justice has to be satisfied. They don't like that idea of justice. And so I mean, it's the same with N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright even, I heard him speak at the Evangelical Theological Society back in, I think it was 2010. And so he was presenting his theory of justification, his interpretation of these Pauline texts. And he basically, and he focused right there on Romans 117, the righteousness of God. And he said, now we can dismiss right away this whole medieval idea that, that there has to be merit, that God requires some kind of merit. And then, you know, it used to be in the middle ages that it was the saints that accumulated all this extra merit and it went into the treasury of the saints. And then, and then you could get a hold of that through the sacraments of the church or something. And then Luther replaced that with saying, no, instead of all the treasury of the merit of the saints, we have the merit of Christ. And then that's what's imputed to us. And N.T. Wright just scoffed at that. Said, we mm. can dismiss that theory right out of the bat. That's obviously not what Paul is talking about here. And so you see, it's this, it's this basic um, problem of, so, you know, I was saying that it's, watering down the concept of justification to something vague, like being in a right relationship with God, because it, nobody wants to really believe in this idea that God is a holy God and that he requires that his justice be satisfied, that the law, the justice of God as reflected in his perfect holy law, requiring that we love God with our whole heart, you know, and love our neighbors ourselves perfectly from the moment of our conception to the end of our life, that we have to perfectly obey God, mm. that that requirement is there. That's, that's the thing that's missing is that, that element of the satisfaction of justice. Because if you have that, then you have the idea of justification being this alien righteousness that is credited to our account. But if you get rid of that, if you, if you wipe out like N.T. Wright did just with a wave of the hand and say, we don't need merit anymore, we don't need the justice of God anymore, then that opens the door for all these other theories, relational theories. Maybe it's, maybe the key is repentance. We just need to repent more. Or maybe the key is covenant faithfulness, mm. you know, and then faith becomes a work. And then works and faith are kind of blended together into this general mishmash of just, you know, believing in God and trusting him and being faithful to him and loving people. And, you know, or you could even bring in, you could even bring in social justice if you want yeah. say, mm -hmm. basically we're saved by being really, you know, strongly defending the rights of the oppressed and, and mm -hmm. working for social justice and racial reconciliation and whatever you, we can bring in all kinds of social gospel stuff into it. And that's what happens when you lose this idea of the standard of God's justice and law. Yeah, it's so helpful. I mean, when you think about the Christian, I think we, when we, well, the reality is that the Christian, it's not as if they receive uh, injustice or if God just passes over them and decides I'm not going to bring out justice upon them for being sinners. But it's right. the fact that the Christian receives uh, non-justice, if you will, yeah. because Christ yeah. is, this is R.C. Sproul, right? 101, but yeah. it's Christ who takes the justice that they deserve because yeah. he is fully satisfied or to borrow from First uh, John 2, propitiation, right? He is a propitiation for our sins. He is fully yeah. satisfied. He is fully sufficient. 
And what I often find is, obviously, we can go to uh, these texts like Romans one seventeen, or go to Galatians and, and, and sort of wrestle there with the text and correct uh, a faulty view of works of the law. But what I often find with some of these brothers is they have a very anemic or non-existing federal theology. So they don't really have, I'm not, I haven't read them, so I'm not sure what they do with Romans 5, but in my reading of them, federal theology plays no part or, or little part at all in their understanding of justification and in this understanding of the righteousness of, righteousness of God and the fact that there was something that, that, that uh, this covenant, you know, in the garden that Adam was placed in. And by failing to really deal with that, right, it's the, I, I think I've said it the last episode we were together, but it's, it's the Meredith Klein proverb. If you fail to affirm this, this covenant of works in the garden, if you, if you deny, if consistent, you're going to then bring that works principle in the back door somewhere else, right? It's going to be faith plus works or Dude. faith in your faithfulness or faith gets you in, but your works keep you in. And uh, so how does uh, having a better or a more robust view of our federal theology help us really have a greater assurance in the gospel and a greater grasp of, of what, it is, what, what this righteousness is that we have through Christ? Well, you nailed it. I don't, I don't have anything to add. You just said it. Uh, <laughs> that's it, right? I mean, what I was talking about, this, this idea of the judicial context and the need for the satisfaction of justice, that's just simply another way of saying that there is this requirement of works and it's first expressed in the garden in the covenant that god made with adam in the garden that we call the covenant of works and if adam had kept that covenant if he had passed the probationary test which was not just simply to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it was a positive thing as well which is to confront the serpent and to expel him from the holy presence of god Mm. since adam was a priest king whose got, whose job was to guard the holiness of the garden, which was a sanctuary. And so he was supposed to confront the serpent and either kill him himself or expel him from the holy realm and let God take care of him. I don't know, but he was supposed to do something, some kind of judicial activity of confronting the serpent. And um, that is the covenant of works. That is where the principle of God's justice is first established, that God requires justice to be satisfied. He requires obedience. He requires righteousness. If Adam had done that, he would have been justified in a different way. He would have been justified by works. He would have been justified by obeying God. And he would have been reckoned as righteous, not by an alien imputation of the righteousness of Christ, but by his own righteousness. And then he would have been qualified to enter into the eschatological state that was held out to him to eat of the tree of life and live forever and to receive a glorified body and to have all of the creation glorified along with him. He would have entered into heaven, Mm. if you will. He would have earned heaven by his merit, by his obedience. But of course, we know that, you know, Romans 5, which you already mentioned, tells us that, you know, where Adam sinned and brought death and condemnation to the human race, Christ obeyed. And his obedience is reckoned as righteousness to all whom he represents. So you have this two-atom structure of biblical theology, the covenant of works in the garden, which has been broken, and then a new covenant made with Christ, not the new covenant, but a new covenant of works, if you will, called the pactum salutis, the covenant between the Father and the Son, in which the Father promised the Son that he would have all the elect as his reward if he fulfilled the terms of 
the covenant of works given with him, which is the requirement that he become a man, obey the law and go to the cross. And that through his obedience, he would be, he would receive the eschatological reward that was originally offered to Adam. So this whole two two Adam structure, it can also be called federal theology, is key to understanding justification. The works principle is not abandoned. Even though Adam failed, that principle is still present and it's present with uh, perfect justice in the work of Christ. Christ as the second Adam undertakes to fulfill what Adam failed to do. And so just as Adam was supposed to confront the serpent, Christ did that. You know, you see that in the, in the temptation in the wilderness and in the garden of Gethsemane, where he is wrestling with the serpent. And ultimately he crushes the serpent's head, just as was promised in Genesis 3.15. Amen. And then because of that, he wins the reward for himself and for all of his people. So yeah, that's the key. If, if people don't believe in that concept of the two atom structure and they don't believe in that covenant of works in the garden, and if they try to water it down into some kind of gracious covenant where Adam was just supposed to be a Christian and just trust God and be obedient and then that would have been good enough, then that destroys the, the two atom structure of biblical theology and then that ends up basically overthrowing justification by faith alone. And now we're not justified by faith alone. Now we're just, just justified by doing the best we can, by being covenantally faithful to the Lord as best we can. So, And, you, and you've hit all over it, but the talking about justification and judgment and the, and the future final judgment, how do we understand the relationship of those two things and what, what comfort is there for the believer in light of that judgment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if Christ has fulfilled the works principle and satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, then he has already earned heaven for us. And so that means that whatever there is going to be at the day of judgment, the Bible does talk about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, but whatever that's going to be, it's not going to involve this question of are you worthy of entering heaven? Because that's already been decided by Christ and by his work. And so, yes, there is going to be some kind of, you know, examination of our lives and rewards and things like that, but it's not going to be up in the air about whether we are qualified to enter heaven. Doesn't Paul himself even say that? Colossians 1, that, you know, giving thanks to the Father, right? There you go. Let's see if I can get the wording here. Colossians 1. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we're already qualified. I mean, that's just another, that's just justification in different words, right? He's justified us. He's, he's given us the right and title to eternal life because Christ has done it. Christ has earned it. And so we, we receive that right and title, not because of our own works or our own faithfulness, but because of Christ's works. So yeah, the day of judgment is not a fearful thing for us. It's a, it's a, an opportunity for us to have that vindication publicly manifested, if you will, you know, to all the world and to the angels and the whole world will see that we are indeed Christ's and that we have that ticket to heaven, the righteousness of Christ. 
but it's not going to be, you know, looking at your life in order to determine whether or not you've been good enough mm. because none of us are good enough. Praise the Lord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even if, even if we were the most sanctified and holy person on this earth, even then our, our, our sanctification is, is imperfect and shot through with weakness and failure. And even our best works wouldn't be enough to qualify us for heaven. Mm. Only the works of Christ can. Amen. Yeah. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So as you're talking about that, I've got one text to push back now. I think we're in agreement and I think I've read your lengthy treatment of this, but I, I hear one text. I, if we had anyone listening who, who maybe had a stronger or they believe in some sort of twofold justification, right? One by faith and one by works on that great day, they would take you to Romans 2.13, right? They would say, well, Paul talks about, he says in Romans 13, 2.13, he says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And many of some of these guys that we've mentioned early on in this episode, you know, will appeal to this to say, hey, yeah. works have to play some real sense in our salvation, not in just some sort of fruit or, or something like that. That's a result of our salvation, but they have to play some sort of predominant role. How do we understand this text? And what is, what is Paul doing here in Romans 2? Because it does seem weird. Well, I'll let you say, this is just say, it seems weird he would say that. And then we get to Romans 3 and you're like, well, wait a, wait a second here. So what, would you, what, do we, what do we do with that text? How do we understand that text? Yeah, well, the key to understanding this verse is to read it in the context. You know, I mean, yeah. Paul is making, he's building an argument. He's making an argument. In fact, I would argue that Romans 1 through 11 is a sustained, continuous argument from chapter 1 to chapter 11. In chapter 12, he shifts to some exhortations for the Christians in Rome that build on the argument, but they're not part of the argument per se. But Romans 1 through 7 is actually an extended argument. And so you have to read Romans 2.13 in the context. And the context is he's building the case to show why it is that both Jews and Gentiles alike are condemned in the sight of God and that there is no one who is righteous. And so part of that argument, so he starts off in chapter 1 with addressing the Gentiles, beginning in verse 18 and continuing to the end of chapter one. And he's focusing on their idolatry, their sexual immorality and impurity and so on, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Then in chapter two, he turns to the moral man who judges, you know, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now that could be a Jew, but it could also be a moral Gentile. There were moral Gentiles back then. Remember the, the Greek philosophers like Plato and others who had a very high sense of morality and did not engage in all of the, you know, brutal wickedness of the Gentiles that we typically think of as described in chapter one and thought that they thought that that was bad too, you know, then they were trying to be righteous and moral. And so my view is that in chapter two, verses one through, I guess, around nine or so, he's focusing on the moral Gentile. Hmm. Um, Although it could include the moral Jew, but he's focusing on the moral Gentile. But then at beginning in verses 9, 10, he starts to bring up this issue of the Jews. And then in verse 12, he says, or verse 10, he says, <clears throat> but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So here he's bringing up the possibility that both a Jew and a Greek could be pursuing 
good things. But God's going to judge both equally, for God shows no partiality. Hmm. Then in verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned, I'm in chapter 2 now, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there you clearly see that he's basically talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Those who are under the law are the Jews. Those who are without the law are the Gentiles. And he's saying that both groups are sinful. All who have sinned will perish, regardless of whether they had the law or, or not. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So you Jews, if you think that you're righteous just because you hear the law, that's not what makes you righteous. If you want to be righteous by the law, you have to do what the law says. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. And then in verse 14, then he turns to Gentiles who, even though they don't have the law, yet they even do good things on occasion. And even their own conscience bears witness to them that they, they know the difference between right and wrong. So, so his point here in this whole context is basically not to say that there will actually be some people who are justified by doing the works of the law. Rather, his point is that if you want to be justified that way, you can't just be a hearer of the law. You have to be a doer of the law. And so the end result of his whole argument is chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then chapter 3, verse 20. So by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Mm, no, that's helpful. So it's almost like chapter two, hey, here's the standard of God's justice. If you want to you want to be a doer of the law, here you go. Chapter three, here, impossible. here's the impossibility of it. Right. Even, even in 23, for all. It's like the like, new city. We, we uh, use the new city, Dr. Irons, in our catechism right. class for our families. And there's a question talking about, you know, can we keep the law? And I love the answer. It says, you know, no mere man. Can, mm -hmm. can keep the law perfectly. Right. So no, that's, that's a helpful way to look at that verse in its context. And when we talk about like justification and a reading up on this subject, that seems to be one of the primary words being challenged by the new perspective. You know, from the best I can understand, it's a legal term to be reckoned or to be counted as righteous. And, you know, I think a lot of minds go to a courtroom in that, I was a fan of Law and Order growing up, probably watched way too much of it as a kid, but it's not, and I, I picked up some of this in some of the different debates, if you will, some will picture it as a, like a, like a criminal court where, you know, your, your jury and your prosecutors and your defendant and, you know, Satan's the prosecutor, I don't know, just make it up, it's an illustration. And then some of the new perspective people will, will count it like a citizenship court, trying to gain your citizenship into, into yeah, that's a good government. point. That's <laughs> and, and that's yeah. how they try to reckon the word reckon is they make it, well, it's, it's, it is court. It's just citizenship and you are now a citizen. Yeah. And yeah. then some take it even further and well, it's actually adoption court where you're part of the family now. That's how they're, they're trying to smooth over some of the inconsistencies, I think, with their approach to that word. And, you know, I think all those illustrations are useful and I don't think my illustration is going to add much to the conversation, but, you know, I'm, I'm picturing a completely different kind of court where, you know, God is the judge. He was the legislator that wrote the law to begin with. 
He's the judge judging the law. He's the witness that you have broken the law. And he is the jury that will condemn you for breaking the law. Mm-hmm. But every time he looks over to the defendant's end, he just sees Christ. Mm. Yep. So in, in, you are in Christ and justified. And then if you, you know, maybe want to tie relational aspects into it, you know, you're, you're counted innocent. That same judge steps off the bench and embraces his son, which is you in Christ. And I'd, I'd love to hear your input on that idea of the courtroom or the judge. And really, because I think it, it might simplify some of these harder concepts that we're talking about tangentially and kind of disconnected from things. Do you think that can be a helpful illustration and maybe tie some things together or, or just your input in general before we close? No, I agree. It's very helpful. Another way to get at that is to look at this Greek word, dikaiao, translated justify, and to look how it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in those occurrences, it's just what you said, Dylan, that it, it's used in courtroom contexts. For example, I'm just off the top of my head thinking of one that I know of. It's in Isaiah, one occurrence of the word. It's in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 23. And these are the woes of the Lord against the iniquity of the people of Jerusalem. What are those who call evil good? What are those who are wise in their own eyes? What are those who are heroes of drinking wine? And then woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe. So the word acquit, this translated acquit there is dekayao. And he's condemning the, the judges of Israel who were acquitting the guilty for a bribe, I mean, literally taking money in order to make a ruling that was unjust and to acquit the guilty. So uh, this is used in other, other places too. It's used in the Mosaic law in the same context of a judicial, you know, literal judge context. And uh, that's, that's the meaning of the word. It doesn't have anything to do with becoming a member of the people of God or some kind of relational meaning or anything like that. It's just simply a judicial verdict. If, if so much of the new perspective point hinges on that word meaning something else, how are they, sounding a little ignorant here, how are they getting around that in their, in their whether it's hermeneutics or translation? If that's clearly what justification means, what is their, what is their rebuttal to, nope, that's a legal term, it means this? <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you, you asked that question because that's what I wrote my dissertation on. Two hour episode, baby, yeah. let's go. <laughs> so, so I, basically I was addressing that very question of how did they, how did the new perspective scholars get this idea that the word justify and the, and the noun righteousness, which is dikaiosune in English justify and righteousness don't sound related, but in Greek they're related. The word to be righteous is dikaios. You're a dikaios person. You're a righteous person. That's the adjective. The verb dikaiao means to reckon someone to be righteous. And then the, the noun dikaiosune just means righteousness. So it would be helpful if our English translations were consistent and used either the righteousness root or the just root all the way through. But anyway, that's partly because of the idiosyncrasies of the English language, which has a, an Anglo-Saxon base and a French layer added on that brings in the Latin. But anyway, the, the issue is where do they get this lexical? What's the lexical argument 
Like if you just look up these words in the dictionary, in a, in a Greek dictionary, where does, how do they get this idea that these words should be translated something along the line? Lenti Wright says that the verb should be translated to reckon somebody a member of the people of God, and the noun should be translated as covenant faithfulness. So he wants to get these relational covenantal flavors into the word. And unfortunately, he is not, he's not just making this up out of thin air, like N.T. Wright just sat down and said, hey, I have an idea, we'll make this the new definition. There actually are many theological dictionaries going back to the beginning of the 20th century. So going back to a German theologian named Hermann Kramer, going back to that guy, there are many, many theological word books and dictionaries that argue that covenant that, uh, sorry, that righteousness language in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is to be understood in a relational way as covenant faithfulness or some kind of covenantal concept. Hermann Kramer argued that whenever the Bible talks about God's righteousness, you know, like all the passages in Psalms, you know, where he's like appealing to God's righteousness, deliver me in your righteousness, or the ones in Isaiah where God says, my righteousness is going to be revealed and my salvation is drawing near, those kind of passages. He appealed to all those and he said, because of those passages, the righteousness of God in the Old Testament, when it's, when, when it's God's righteousness, is always a saving righteousness. It's never a negative judicial righteousness that punishes. It's always a positive thing. He yeah. called it, he said, it's a thoroughly positive concept. So he argued that there's this big contrast between the Hebrew concept of righteousness and the Greek concept of righteousness that the Greco-Roman culture focuses on judicial ideas and law and so on, but that's not the Hebraic. The Hebraic idea, the Hebraic concept of righteousness is relational, it's covenantal, and it's positive. It's never judicial and negative. And so that idea got into the bloodstream of biblical studies. And if you look at all these theological word books like Kittle's Theological Dictionary, all these different, there's some articles by the Octomires in um, the Abington Dictionary of Theology and so on. They all repeat this idea of, of Hermann Kramer that righteousness is a relational concept. And so N.T. Wright, when he is pressed on this, just says, well, look at all these dictionaries. They all say this. And that's why I hold to it. So... My dissertation was to show that this whole tradition going back to Herman Kramer is wrong, that it's, and so I looked at all of Kramer's arguments to see how did he come to this view. And basically the way he came to it was that he argued that righteousness is never negative in the Old Testament. That's always positive. That's crazy. And the, the reality is that he's not right on that. That's just not true. There are many passages where it's negative as well, where it's ju judicial and condemning. But he tried to explain those away by saying, well, those are late. Those are like from the post-exilic era or something. Those are not the real authentic Hebraic concept. So I did a word study on all the occurrences of God's righteousness in the Psalms and Isaiah and so on. And I argued that they can all be understood. Yes, there are those positive occurrences, but they're still to be understood in the sense of God's distributive justice of rewarding the righteous and condemning the wicked, because the reason why God's righteousness is delivering and saving for God's people is because the way that he delivers them is by judging their enemies. Mm. So it's still a judicial verdict. It's a judicial verdict of judgment against the enemies, which leads to the deliverance for God's people. 
So that was kind of the whole thrust of my argument. And I found out later that I did a talk at Phoenix Seminary and the, the uh, professor who arranged for me to speak, his name is Dr. Peter Gurry. He was able to get through texting or email a question to N.T. Wright in response to my dissertation. This is the only feedback I've gotten from N.T. Wright to hear if he knows about, I know that he knows about my book. I know that he knows, <laughs> I've heard about, I've heard, you know, like ripples and rumors from other people that are connected to him that say, yeah, he's aware of it. But the question is, so how do you respond? And his response was two things. Number one, well, look at all those theological dictionaries. They can't be wrong. And response number two was the Antioch incident that I pointed out at the very beginning of our episode, Galatians 2, when the question is, you know, are Gentiles included as members of the people of God so that we can have table fellowship together? It's in that context that Paul first uses this formula of saying, we are justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So see, therefore, justified, it's being used in this relational covenantal context. So it must mean, just because of the context, it must mean who is a member of the people of God. Are uh, Gentiles do also members of the people of God, even though they're not keeping the food laws and even though they're unclean and not keeping the Jewish law? Yes, they are. They don't have to do those things. They don't have to do the works of the law in that technical sense of the boundary markers that separate Jews from Gentiles. They are reckoned as members of the people of God simply by the badge of faith. That is the badge of professing that you believe in Jesus, the Messiah. So even faith is redefined. I didn't mention this before, but all three of those words, right? Justified, works of the law, and faith all get redefined. Mm. So faith gets redefined to mere profession of faith and not yeah. this idea of trusting and receiving the work of Christ. It, so. becomes, it becomes the passive instead of the active. Yeah, exactly. Good collection. Yeah. So, oh man, that's that's so helpful, brother. And you know, one of the things that we I wish we could talk more about is the, the you know theological method, how we approach scripture and theology. There's so many things at play here. You know, a lot of the times in these discussions, only Romans is mentioned or only Galatians. Don't worry about the pastoral epistles, which are pretty explicit in some places about the you know righteousness and justification and not saved by works and and really making the. Yeah works they're explicit you know we're not talking about just ceremonial law here we're talking about the moral law of god right right and this this has been helpful brother i think this is going to serve us well in thinking clear about the gospel thinking clear about the importance of, of federal theology but also just as we think about our struggle with sin and we wrestle with temptation as christian mm -hmm. finding our assurance in the satisfaction of christ fully truly and 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 the fullest sense of christ alone and you know, really it is Reformed theology that can preach the fullness and the freeness of the gospel in Jesus Christ, and at the same time say, and good works are always going to be a fruit of that, of that God, but they're never the, they're never the instrument or the cause of that salvation. So that's been helpful. Maybe as we close, brother, you could maybe, I know we've kind of talked about the new perspective on Paul kind of as a launch pad here, but maybe just uh, one or two books that maybe you would recommend Maybe one upper shelf, one lower shelf, or maybe people in the church who want to maybe want to delve into this issue, or maybe just a book that's going to help them better understand the gospel in a way that would arm them to kind of push back against some of these false views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. There is a book on 
the new perspective that I thought was helpful by uh, Guy Waters. See if I can get him to type into Amazon here and see if I can get the exact title. Uh, it's called Justification and the New Perspectives on Paul by Guy, Wa- Guy Prentice Waters. It was published in 2004. He does a really good job of covering you know, some of those figures I mentioned before, Stendhal, James Dunn, N.T. Wright, and so on, and then giving a good response to that. That would be a little bit more of an academic level book. Let's see, something more practical on justification. Probably uh, John Fesco. John Fesco's book on justification is very good, published by PNR. And he also has a section dealing with the new perspective. You could also get this would be more on the academic side again, but this would be Mike Horton's two volumes on justification published by Baker. He actually does a great job of tracing the historical development of the doctrine, talking about Luther, talking about what the Reformation did in uh, recovering the doctrine. He also quotes my work on righteousness extensively and positively. So that's cool. If you, if you want to get sort of a thumbnail sketch of what I was arguing for in my book, you could get it from that. Uh, my book is really expensive. The I expect you're being in one of those. Yeah. Yeah. 135 bucks. I mean, you can go to Bookfinder and find it for maybe $88, but even that's pretty <laughs> high for most people. So, so I don't really encourage people to do that, but yeah, yeah, those are some good ones. I think you got a couple articles on Upper Register as well, your website, which we'll link in the show notes. I think you've written a few on there on the kind of the new perspective yeah. and mm-hmm. merit and things like that that we'll definitely tag in there. So. Yeah, I have an article on Romans 2.13 and some other things as well. Yeah, and I have that one on my computer. I'd teed you up for that one on, for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, I should also mention um, that I wrote a book review of a recent book on justification called Justification in God's Kingdom by Se-Yoon Kim, who was actually one of my PhD advisors at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he, he's kind of moving towards this relational theory of justification and confusing justification and sanctification. So I wrote a critical review of his book that you can find on academia.edu. I'll send you the link to that. Okay, perfect. Well, brother, thank you so much again for coming on. I didn't scare you off in our first interview and I'm sure we'll find, you know, the next one I think we need to do is we just need uh, sort of an introduction to Meredith Klein, the man his theology and his contribution. And I can sure, I'd love to do that. Better to do that. Meredith Klein, by the way, gents, is, it's a, he's a dude, very manly dude to have the first name Meredith, but a, I think a, an excellent biblical theologian who has blessed the church and we need more people to know about him. So, well, all okay. right, brother. That's good. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thanks again for listening to Pilgrim Talk. And once again, we'd encourage you to visit us on Facebook. You can search Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for F-O-R. And again, if you found this episode helpful or you know someone that might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with your friends.